Welcome to the Propane Fitness Podcast. Once again, we have a very special guest today, Kamal Patel, who is the brains behind examine.com. He's a nutrition researcher, an MPH, and MBA from Johns Hopkins University. You're listening to the Propane Fitness Podcast, your ultimate resource for fat loss and muscle gain with none of the gimmicks. With your hosts, Yusuf and Johnny. Simple rules, dramatic results. Hello, Kamal. Hello. How are you doing? Pretty good. How about yourself? Hot. We So <laughs> the, the temperature has just gone up to like 20 degrees in the UK, which you know, <laughs> probably work in Fahrenheit, but and that, that'll be like a normal day in winter for you but yeah you actually see... when i when i heard uh you guys had fans in your room i was pretty surprised because i live near <laughs> the beach in san francisco and it's quite cold i bet it's cold. warmer cold. than where we are <laughs> we're just it, it might actually not be we i live in fog country so it's always i'm always blanketed by a layer of fog no matter where i go oh, right. wow i think yeah. it's the it's the hottest day in the uk this year it was the hottest day yesterday and then it's been hotter than yesterday today, so... Man, global warming. Second peep. I know, I know. It's But, like, we just aren't equipped for it. Like, there's no air conditioning. We're not used to it at all. So when it happens, everyone's just like... We've just oh been wilting. Oh, <laughs> Terrible. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Come on, for those who don't know you? Yeah, sure. So I'm a nutrition researcher. Um, I first became interested in nutrition, like most people, um, trying to gain muscle. And uh, I think it was around I mean, 1998... Um, I first went to a gym and it was uh, I was very thin, skinny fat, I guess, going into college. And uh, I never lifted a weight before in my life. And it just so happened the guy who lived in the dorm room next to me was a powerlifter and a, a very good one. Um, so nobody talked to him because he was kind of scary looking and, and quiet. Uh, and then I asked him in the cafeteria one day, you know, um, I've never lifted weights before. Can you give me some advice? And he said, try to focus less on sets and reps and, you know, whether you twist your arms inward on your shoulder press and learn how to cook, uh, learn what's in your food and be rigorous at controlling your habits. So I started learning about nutrition. And then uh, 10 to 15 years later, I started a PhD program in nutrition, which I'm on a extended hiatus from, uh, where I study nutrition and pain chronic pain. And somewhere in there, I started directing examine.com, um, where we write about systematic reviews of supplements, and we try to get as objective as a viewpoint as is possible, while still being at least a little bit entertaining. It. That's pretty good advice from just like a powerlifter in a cafeteria. To, <laughs> yeah, to I like... know. It's, uh, that doesn't happen often. Usually you ask somebody at the gym and they say, it's you know, like work harder. Twice yeah. A week. <laughs> yeah, it's better than like any free advice on the internet just giving it you over over a bowl of soup i know good. you know what's crazy is that that guy disappeared like he's not on the internet he was a usa powerlifting at that time i guess he was 19 or 20 record holder and he he was just shy of 2000 pound total and then right after he graduated college he was gone he's not on the internet he's not on social media i don't know if he if he's still lifting weights or if he's just in a dungeon somewhere but it sounds like then that this was more of like an angel or a figure that you met rather than a real person that you know, yeah it might have been drug induced I'm not totally sure <laughs> but a drug induced vision where your spirit father told you to learn to cook yeah it's rare to have a, a powerlifting spirit father but <laughs> it's pretty good right? well I, I suppose like um, Harrison's uh, spirit animal is Ed Cohn so 
it can happen. So, you know, funny enough with Ed Cohen, uh, right after I talked to that guy, the first year I, I gained a lot of muscle and fat at the same time. And I was like, you know, I'm going to try a, a, a powerlifting contest in the next year. And I was like, it's a bit of an aggressive timeline. Let me find out who's best at powerlifting on, you know, by Googling. There was no Google back then, so I think I used web crawler AltaVista, you know, and Ed Cohen. So to this day, I'm, I'm good at Googling for people's email addresses. And I found his email address. And I wrote him a really long email. And he replied the day after with specific advice on how to prepare for your first meet. So, like, he's like the nicest guy in the world. That is hilarious. You were like... I want to learn powerlifting. I know who is the best powerlifter in the world, and then just send him an email. Why yeah, it, you know, I don't think that would happen nowadays with the the superstars of lifting. But oh, so every, everyone else is like scrambling around for some decent information. Then you're you're just two, the first two people you ask for advice just happen to be. I know, right? Pretty lucky. And, and I get I get kind of tired of people saying, "Oh, you know, just ask, uh, just just email." people who are the best in their field and they email you back because I'm a bit shy usually, but that's the only people I ever needed to ask a question to. And <laughs> it's done. <laughs> 100% success rate. Yep. yep. Fantastic. Brilliant. Brilliant. So you managed, you messaged, uh, messaged, mentioned, <laughs> the heat, the heat's getting to us. You mentioned examine.com. Now for anyone that has managed to live under a cave and not discovered the wealth that is examine.com can you tell us what well how, how do you access it and and what is it well it's uh it's sort of like very sort of like wikipedia for supplements and nutrients so if you did live in a cave there's actually a way to to save uh wikipedia onto a flash drive it fits onto a normal size flash drive crazy enough and kind of the equivalent for nutrients and supplements is examine.com the difference being we're not collaboratively edited we're edited by our own people to make sure that weird errors don't go in but other than that we try to cover all major nutrients and all major supplements and a lot of the more esoteric ones basically what we do is when there's a review done by researchers it's either a quantitative review which is a meta-analysis um, pulling together results of different studies or a, a systematic review without a meta-analysis, like when you have too many different types of studies um, or there's not enough studies out there. So we do the equivalent, but it's free. You know, it's not behind a paywall. And we try to update it fairly often, which systematic reviews and journals aren't updated that often. Uh, so we have our core team of around 10 to 20 people that's just always reading articles and always synthesizing them. It's that's all amazing. done to an extremely high standard as well. Yeah, the standard is fairly high. I'd say, you know, a lot of this interview will be uh, not self-congratulatory. It's not at the level of a journal. You know, we don't spend that long because we don't have an editor to answer to or reviewers. But we try to make it as good as possible for public consumption. So we don't grade the quality of the evidence because that takes a long time. And we also don't want to throw out bad studies because even if a study is bad, it could provide good information if it's the only study of its kind. So it's not quite a systematic review, but I'd say it, it's pretty high. So Kamal, I'm right in saying that you didn't, you didn't, you weren't one of the original founders of Examine? No, so the founders are Saul Orwell and Curtis Frank, who met on Reddit, Reddit Fitness, and uh, you know, like a lot of people, they were just talking about where to find information, and there's a lot of good places to find information. When I first started reading about nutrition, then I think I read the teen bodybuilding section of bodybuilding.com, you know, and 
it was like Lane Norton and and various people like that uh, talking about they're potentially going to go to grad school and this is what they found out about science in college and how they apply it to lifting and nutrition. And that's really great. The caveat being that bodybuilding.com has to sell something. We sell something too, but we don't sell products. Um, We don't sell anything physical. We just sell information. So um, bodybuilding.com sells supplements and you know, even somebody's own website, they have to sell basically advertising space and have affiliates. And that's all fine because usually high quality people have high quality affiliates. But we have no affiliates and we, we try to be isolated from everybody um, like Switzerland. I'm not sure if Switzerland is actually like Switzerland. I just keep that. But um, whatever is the most neutral. So we don't make advertising money. And for a little bit, that was an issue. Uh, so right before I came on, a couple years after the site was founded, just before that, I think uh, they had tried Amazon affiliate links and then uh, quickly decided that wasn't the best way to go. Because even though that makes money, when people buy a product, they're like, oh, well, I bought it from a link from your website, you know, and now I broke out in hives. So, <laughs> you know, we're just totally separate from that. We sell all the website is free and then we sell additional information above that. And that's how we're different from every other website. And the second way is that I don't think there's other websites that try to be systematic. And by systematic, I don't mean thorough. I mean literally systematic. So looking at every single paper that's been published on various topics. So those are the two things that make us different. And it's been cool actually seeing the progression of examine.com over the years and seeing the kind of experimenting with your business model. And I think what you've settled on now certainly bolsters your credibility, as you said, by being that kind of isolated and, and rigorous systematic approach to everything and not kind of um <clears throat> not having to be not having to dance to the tune of of any particular supplement seller or even be associated with affiliate links and so on in case as you said like people then infer some kind of um relationship with it so it's really mm-hmm. cool and i'm so glad to see that um that it's that it's going well because i think the internet needs this kind of thing when there's just no barriers to information and people are throwing around all kinds of crazy claims it's a nice kind of oasis of scientific truth yeah ideally there would be something like this in every facet of life um oh, i don't yeah. know if you guys like gadgets a lot but wire cutter is a good the best site for electronic stuff and then their what's their kitchen kind of one called sweet the sweet home, home. yeah so basically everything I buy nowadays for myself is recommended by them. Like I bought a standing desk recommended by them and it's great. I bought a, a sous vide machine and it's great because recommended by them. And they have affiliate links, which actually works in their case because, you know, it's a it's a device. They're not saying anything about it other than it heated the water up to this temperature well and it cooked a steak pretty well. Whereas there's like 20 trillion supplements out there and brands. So if we recommend something... It's really saying something about that product and what it could do for your health, which is which is a big thing. You know, we don't want to mislead people. I suppose it, it's very different, isn't it, when someone's putting something into themselves that yeah, using it. You know, that's a very different consequence to like, oh, my desk didn't wasn't quite the right height versus I died as a result of the <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the dying is a lot worse than you know, like cramping up or exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, so speaking of dying, peer review as well. Yeah. Lack of death. So speaking of dying. Speaking of dying. So the opposite of dying um, is being really healthy. And uh, do you like that segue? So we're yeah, gonna uh, thriving about. even because I watch these survival shows and they say I'm not here 
to survive 21 days. I'm here to surf thrive. No, surf thrive. thrive. I like it. sounds stupid to me. So how would we, the the subject that we were going to talk to you about today, um, which is something that gets kind of mentioned a lot, this idea of health within the context of the fitness industry and promoting health or following a healthy diet or um, having a, using, using healthy supplements, et cetera. How would you go about addressing the issue of a healthy diet? You know, what is healthy and how might we use supplements to bolster that or, or create that situation? So um, I'd say this is a, a really good opportunity to use an ancestral perspective. So uh, I don't like to use the word paleo because it's kind of stupid. Um, and then also overused and branded and all this other stuff. But uh, for better or for worse, we're humans and we have a lot of history written into our DNA and into the DNA of the stuff that's in our guts and you know all kinds of stuff. So uh, the way I like to think about supplements is supplements is a really broad category and uh, people lump everything into supplements, basically anything you take in a pill form or liquid form or whatever. But I like to think of it in terms of you know, people who are sort of thriving, you know, they're okay with their diets and they're basically happy and, you know, they don't have a lot of chronic conditions. So everybody else, you can supplement to get up to that level, possibly. It might or might not work. But the supplements you would take would either complement your existing diet and lifestyle. So that would be things like supplementing with nutrients, with vitamins and minerals. Or... If you're sick, then you can supplement with therapeutic things that might be able to bring you up to sort of thriving. So that would be like um, if you have depression and and creatine might help major depression, according to randomized trials. So then you would supplement with that because you have a chronic condition, not because you're missing creatine from your diet. You're not complementing your diet. You're taking something therapeutically. And then the third thing, other than those two, would be if you're trying to perform better than uh, a normal person would. So like a powerlifter, you know, you want every possible advantage so you can do well at your meet, especially bodybuilders. They do literally anything to look, you know, better with papery skin and, you know, whatever crazy muscles pop out and veins on veins. So that's an extra level. And kind of the new thing now is uh, nootropics and trying to perform better than most people. So... Um, those are the three types of supplementation and you always have to take a step back and consider which level you're at. So if you have any condition whatsoever, you have to address those before trying to perform better than people. Um, and those would be things like supplementing for sleep, supplementing for stress, um, and supplementing for general health and chronic conditions. It's interesting you mentioned that it's kind of a blurred continuum as well and there's no there's no real division between them. and you know, in the case of depression as well, you know, where does, where does a supplement stop? You know, if you're taking creatine or if you're taking an SSRI, they're both going to be kind of supplementing your neurotransmitters in some way. And, and so mm-hmm. what, you know, it is kind of a, a continuum. And I imagine some of the, some of the supplements that a bodybuilder might take may not actually be healthy in terms of longevity, but it'll achieve the goal that they're aiming to, to achieve in terms of muscle mass or fat yeah. loss or whatever. So like with the continuum, we just analyzed this article about postpartum depression, and it was a supplement that was meant to influence neurotransmitters, and it was actually targeted to the postpartum blues, which 
It is a normal temporary thing that lasts a few days, a couple of weeks. That happens sometimes before postpartum depression. So that happens for everything, for any condition. There's always something a bit subclinical that happens before the clinical condition. And that's really where supplementation can help most because once you have a longstanding condition, it's extremely hard to beat that down, especially using supplements, which most often are not as strong as pharmaceuticals. So, uh, and that also applies to lifting weights because supplements can often help people who are at the beginning or intermediate stages of weightlifting much better than people who are in advanced stages and are already working extremely efficiently and whose bodies don't want to pack on any more muscle. So should we, from a health perspective, should we be looking at the thresholds for when something becomes a clinical condition or say the example I heard recently was, was CRP, the, this uh, inflammatory marker, where if it goes above a certain point, it's considered pathological, but you're saying that we should be looking at the range that's kind of considered the normal range and stay stay at the lowest end of all of those things so that we can keep tabs on or, or, or I guess keep ourselves on the pulse of when our health is, is going out of whack before it gets to the, the clinical threshold. Yeah, and for that I'd say that sort of the trend nowadays is to track more and more things, whether it's quantified self-type tracking where you track your your mood or your steps or you know dozens of other things, or getting lab tests done and testing CRP or um, highly sensitive CRP or uh, various other things. And for about six months or so, I worked with a physician here in San Francisco, which is kind of the hub of self-tracking, his patients who uh, track for various purposes. So about half were former addicts, either alcohol or opioids or something like that. Another half were a mix of people, so people with metabolic disorders weightlifters, people um, who just weren't very happy. And basically what we found is almost everybody tracks too much stuff. So with something like CRP, it's great to get your CRP measured because if you're above threshold, then that's always an issue. It's very rare to have high CRP and to have no medical issues or feel totally happy. That being said, um, the flip side, if you don't have a positive CRP, doesn't actually mean that much because first of all, a highly sensitive CRP measurement could reveal something that the normal CRP measurement doesn't, but also um, CRP is not the end-all be-all. So for systemic measurements, like for inflammation, that kind of ignores the fact that you can have localized inflammation without having it show up in your blood, because a blood test is by definition a measurement of the blood. But there's possible inflammation in the brain, there's possible inflammation in different organs, and you could have possible inflammation in, in even like one joint. And that joint could severely impact you, you know, prevent you from falling asleep, but your CRP is close to zero. So uh, the most sensitive marker of how you feel is tracking how you feel. So by far the most important thing is, do I feel satisfied? If not, you know, what is, what am I dissatisfied about? And then very basic other things, like there are some people who are just getting into uh, health and nutrition or haven't really dipped their toes in yet, Weighing yourself is, you know, very basic um, and easier to do than something that's possibly a bit better, which is um, measuring your waist circumference. But weighing yourself and getting a Wi-Fi scale so that you don't have to write it down. Team Wi-Fi scale checking in. Yeah, Wi-Fi scale. Like even if you're healthy, it's good to have a Wi-Fi scale. I think you don't even have to use it. Just having it around in case you have periods where you feel like you're kind of spiraling into eating too much can prevent episodes because. The, the Perry holiday season is the unhealthiest season, but if you force yourself to weigh yourself, then it's less unhealthy. 
And then the third thing that could be good to measure is sleep. And it's just because sleep determines a lot of the rest of health. And if you kind of make sure that whatever metric is tracked, whether it's the time you go to bed, how much sleep you get, you could even use an Android or iPhone device. The first self-tracking thing I bought was I bought a used Palm Pilot and I think maybe the year 2000, uh, and I thought it was high tech. And it somehow hooked up to a sleep watch uh, that had an actigraph in it that was kind of used for like at-home sleep tracking uh, for sleep apnea. I didn't have sleep apnea. I was just, you know, wasting my student loan money. But um, so I would use that, track my sleep, and you know now it's free uh, using any phone. But that kind of thing is hugely helpful because some people don't know that they might have sleep apnea. Some people don't know that they wake up like five times a day. Sleep is central. It's hard to overestimate the impact it can have. So the picture we're building so far is kind of like starting at the high level view. We say, okay, what what is the goal? And if it's physique or whatever, we still need to make sure that we've got health under control first and that there's no big gaping holes in the bucket and we start measuring weight waist circumference and sleep to kind of cover the um the main bases and then um then we can start sort of narrowing down on on what is it that you're dissatisfied with and um tracking how you feel as the main thing is that is that fair to say yeah and it's important when you track very basic stuff like mood or weight that uh, what I used to do for years is I would track something and then after a few weeks or maybe even a few days, I would get jaded and I'd be like, man, I've been tracking this forever, even though it's been like two weeks. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm beyond this. I don't want to do it anymore. But the the reason why tracking is good is because it keeps you accountable. You know, ideally, everybody would have a coach that you would have to tell your deepest, darkest secrets to, you know, that uh, you've been eating a cake before you go to bed every night and that's why you're not losing weight. So in absence of that, you have to track every day, even if it's weight or mood and do that for at least like three months. You know, all those artificial numbers about, I don't know how many days they say it takes to build a habit, 21, 30, 45, 86. It's all stupid. You have to track until the point where the tracking is so so much part of your routine that you can't give it up um and that's like uh what's that jerry seinfeld's don't don't, don't break the chain yeah, yeah don't break the chain so people who are really hard working either they force themselves by uh you know not going so long they don't want to break the chain or like elon musk or bill gates or whatever they don't need to track because their inner drive is bigger than yours which is you know it's like not a, a slight on anybody but not everybody has that drive to to be the best at whatever they can be because we're humans and we don't want to spend all our time, you know, being robots. But, you know, consistency is the most important. So we're using this as, as almost like a diagnostic of is there something wrong? Yes or no? Like, do I feel okay? Is my weight stable? Is my sleep all right? If so, then I'm maybe not at the level where I need to be using supplementation to plug gaps or, or meet deficiencies. Is that right? Yeah, the, the flow chart kind of thinking is perfect for this because, um, you know, if it's weight loss, then weight loss in practice is hard to do. But uh, the first steps are extremely easy. Track, um, mm. eat a bit less, eat more whole foods. And then if you do that for a long time, then the flow chart's simple. But if it's something like sleep, flow chart might be a little bit different. So um, the thing is, weight loss will not impact you within the course of a few days, but sleep changes will. 
So the flowchart might be something like, you know, you start out, are you getting enough sleep so that you feel refreshed? And some people feel refreshed with eight hours, some with five hours. So it just, there's no hard and set limit. But let's say you're not feeling refreshed. The first step might not be sleep hygiene. It might be melatonin. And it's fine skipping to supplement in that case, because if the supplement is a band-aid that can help you temporarily, then do it because that can help you do other stuff. So in that case, I'd say find the best melatonin, which is often a sustained release melatonin um, because a, a normal melatonin for some people makes them wake up within two hours and then stay awake. But a more sustained release one will kind of, you know, have an ebb and flow throughout the, the night. And then once you get melatonin or valerian root or whatever, and doesn't have to have a, even a ton of evidence, if it has enough evidence, if it has some uh, high quality control trials, that's enough. And if it works for you, fine. Then you work on habits after that. So when we're doing this flowchart thinking, how would you stay objective where I think partly the influence of the online fitness industry and and also the kind of sample, the kind of people that are drawn to this will have a higher proportion of health anxiety and start possibly worrying themselves into a circle that something's not right or that they should be continually optimizing. How do you kind of draw the line between determining whether something is wrong and chasing your tail? So this is a tough one because I don't know quite what it's like in the UK, but um, in the US, primary care doctors, you know, it it just sucks for them because they have to do a bunch of administrative work as well because there's we have all these insurers. Um, I know that the UK is not perfect when it comes to health insurance, but at least people have insurance. So like here, I used to work for Blue Cross Blue Shield, the largest insurer here, in the corporate strategy department, crazy enough. And it's just the biggest scam in the world. So basically in the US, the reason why primary healthcare doctors have so little time to spend with patients is because there's all these insurers and so much pressure to make the visit efficient. And then that ends up screwing things up. So when you go to your doctor here, you might say, I'm worried about X, Y, Z, or, you know, my weight is plateauing or whatever. And they'll be like, try a vegetarian diet or, you know, whatever's on their mind and nothing against vegetarian diet, but there's no systematic way to address problems. So they just throw out whatever they're personally interested in. And then they'll say, like, take an anti-inflammatory because, you know, that everything involves inflammation. So that's not a great way to go about things. Doctor shopping is totally helpful, not something that insurance companies like, but doctor shop until you find a primary care doctor or GP that is open to talking about stuff. If, if you talk about a study and your doctor is dismissive, it's the wrong doctor. You want to find a doctor that at very minimum is like, oh, that's interesting. Even if they're just like saying it to shut you up, that's the very minimum kind of doctor you should have. At the maximum, there's a, a functional medicine type doctor, and there's no good name for this, like holistic medicine, functional medicine, whatever. Um, and it kind of has a bad name too, but if you find a doctor that is interested in where a condition comes from, then that's basically equivalent to a functional medicine doctor. Um, and then at the extreme of this is a functional medicine doctor who is into stuff that's not evidence-based and has no mechanism. So that would be homeopathy, crystals, colon hydrotherapy, etc. Um, so if you skim those people off and you skim off the doctors who don't care, that's the functional medicine type doctor you want. And as long as you visit them maybe once a season, you don't have to worry about being a hypochondriac. 
because then at least you see them once a season and they make sure that you're doing okay and can refer to you to another doctor if you're not. It's fascinating to hear you just your description of the American healthcare system because I think to us it's so so alien that there's this spectrum of doctors and because in the UK they they shape us into androids and into kind of algorithms and protocol and it's all very um, very systematic to use to use the word so um, yeah it's, I think well, in the UK sorry to interrupt you Seth, just leading on from that I think we're kind of not in, we're encouraged to not go to the doctor unless there's something like there's a problem a red flag symptom yeah like I'm in pain yeah. there's, there's, or there's blood and, and otherwise that's the like, tough part about the yeah. UK. At an old job I worked at, the I briefly worked with some people who worked with the NHS because the NHS is really good at guidelines. Yep. And in the US, guidelines are done by hiring a university or research center to develop a guideline, which is fine, but it's not very efficient because there's not as much collaboration done. So my first spec nutrition project was the vitamin D guidelines. The U.S. federal government hired the research center I worked at to inform them and the Institute of Medicine about what the new level of vitamin D should be in 2008. And then 2010, the guidelines got released and they kind of ignored part of our advice because I don't know why the dermatology lobby or whatever wanted the uh, RDA to be a little bit lower. But in the U.K., like we had a fellow from the U.K. and it's like... Everything was by the book compared to here, and there was a lot less separation. It was either like you were in the healthcare system or you were uh, going to a chiropractor or something outside the healthcare system. Whereas here, there's a lot of doctors wanting to do like concierge medicine, online medicine, chiropractors trying to pass themselves off as doctors, you know, various other things. But um, like here, it's easier to get the care that you want if you have money or can doctor shop. But it's a lot harder to get care in the first place. Um, and as far as I know, in the UK, you guys have some issues getting certain lab tests or supplements or, you know, what have you. And we don't have that issue. Well, I think this is part of the same issue in, in the sense that there is asymmetric information with anything science sounding or anything in, um, especially in supplements and where, where you, you know, if you really wanted to find out about a supplement and you are not a science literate person, you have to sit and sift through studies and you may may or may not be able to distinguish what is a good what is a high quality study what's not um what's been just funded for the sake of selling something and so mm. a resource like examine.com fills that that gap perfectly yeah it's uh ideally this would be you know i don't i don't want to sound too socialist but it would be a, a government program because so many people take supplements that it's basically that information is a public good not mm. in the economic sense but it's something that should be accessed by everybody and possibly even part of like educational curriculums. Well, I mean, so Johnny and I alone have probably wasted hundreds, maybe thousands of pounds on supplements over the years that either didn't do us any good, weren't, were pretty poorly evidence-based or at worst doing us harm and, and didn't realize. So, and that's the kind of, I guess that's the mistake that everyone goes through when they're starting on their, their fitness journey. They, they get drawn into the the sales and things. And I think, as you said, for that to be cleared away <clears throat> and for that information to become a public good would stop a lot of the scam artists and also allow people to then gravitate to what is actually going to improve their health, bring them towards their goals and, and so on. Yep. It's quite interesting hearing you talk about <clears throat> at the beginning when you were saying 
like begin with data, begin with tracking mood and sleep and, and even like look at blood work. Cause it's something that like, I know if I go back to sort of near the beginning of my like experimentation with fitness and, and trying to get results, that was something I looked into doing. Like, can I get some kind of blood results? Cause you, he you hear examples of people taking vitamin D cause it's very, very highly discussed in the UK or frequently discussed in the UK that everybody is vitamin D deficient. You do hear examples of people taking really high doses of vitamin D when they don't need to. And so you think, you always think like I should start with some baseline, but I think Yusuf will know more about this than me, but I, I think if you went to your GP in the UK and asked, can I get a full panel of vitamin D and testosterone and all the inflammatory markers, like they'd probably turn you away, I'm guessing. They'd probably they? just see you as a kind of neurotic uh, person <laughs> and, and either turn you away or maybe, I mean, if if you're really pushing for it, you might get referred to psych. Um, I think that's <laughs> that, that's probably a bit a bit harsh. Like, <laughs> but again, well, even it's, like it's because... in the US, there's a movement now among doctors to say that the vitamin D test isn't very important. Which you know, we're not we're not the UK, so several states in the US do get sunlight regularly. That being said, the vitamin D test is like so cheap and so benign. If you get a test for a condition and you might get a false positive, then that might cost the healthcare system money. But if you get a vitamin D test and it's somehow a false positive or you end up doing something when you shouldn't, the worst case scenario is that you take more vitamin D. <laughs> There's no downside at all. So there was this um, umbrella review, which is a meta-analysis is a quantitative pooling of different uh, randomized trials, usually randomized uh, results. And then there's actually a level above that, which is very rare, called an umbrella review. And it can only be done for things that have a ton of research, like vitamin D. So there was an umbrella review two, three years ago that went over every meta-analysis done on vitamin D. So when I was working at that research center, I had to read every study on vitamin D and bone. And it took me like, I don't know, four months. It was a long time. So this study looked at every meta-analysis, which then technically covered every study. And then it concluded that there's actually not much evidence for vitamin D and health outcomes, except for very limited things. So I read through the paper and, uh, you know, I highly respect the lead author who is the, the guy who wrote the paper that said 90% of medical findings are wrong a few years ago. And he also used to work at my research center. But... This paper is kind of bullshit because, you know, like, just think about it intuitively. You have a meta-analysis that spits out a number. You know, P is less than 0.05 that vitamin D doesn't help blood pressure. Okay. But then you have a meta-analysis of different meta-analyses. So you say P is less than 0.05 that out of these 15 meta-analyses, vitamin D helps blood pressure. So then you're looking at a collection of like 80 randomized trials summed up into 12 meta-analyses summed up into one number in an umbrella review what does that say because you're losing all granularity of the individual studies so what if the best study out of those actually show that vitamin d did help blood pressure and the rest are older not as good and populations that don't apply to you and people with disease whatever so i don't trust that result which is why it kind of sucks for people because if you're just Googling something, you're either going to find a random study or a really broad overview that came up with one number summary of a study and you lose everything in between. So, 
you know, it's really tough. And that's why, like, uh, no, I'd say vitamin D nor any test will ever be recommended by health authorities because they'll say, well, it doesn't have conclusive proof that it helps health outcomes, which is never going to happen because no individual nutrient will help a health outcome. It has to be in the context of already nutritious diet. That's very interesting. And especially the fact, as you said, for the for the layman that will or for anyone that just Googles it, it's completely impenetrable. Yeah, they'll get a random spatter of data or like and and it really requires someone like yourself who's spent four months reading every bloody paper in in bone and vitamin D for it to actually uh, to be able to, to draw a conclusion from it. And I think as well, you said that maybe the key difference, though, with what you said, Johnny, about going to the GP and saying, can I just have a full blood panel? is in the American system, you can almost come forward with no symptoms and say, I want to be investigated. And that is not seen as a as a weird thing. Whereas I think the NHS perspective is that you must justify every every investigation. And if you investigate a patient who is asymptomatic and you come up with an abnormal result, you then have an ethical quandary of, do I treat them? Do I investigate further? What's the What's the next step for this? So the whole the whole paradigm is is very different. Um, yeah, that's got to be sources funding issue, hasn't it? Like the dif- the difference in the way that healthcare is provided necessitates yeah. that so it's rare the thing UK in the UK. The UK is trying to save money, and the US is trying to waste money, and they <laughs> they both end up at suboptimal outcomes, but in different ways. Because in the UK, you know, it's that's just so apparently it's hard to get stuff. In the US, like I have a lot of joint issues. Um, I've had something like mm, 18 MRIs, so, oh. and it wasn't hard to get, you know, uh, I would go into the doctor, the x-ray would be negative, they would do some tests, they'd be like, oh, it, you might have a labrum tear, do the MRI, shows a small to medium labrum tear, and then, you know, do you want to have surgery? That doesn't happen in any other country, because so you funny. have to, like at least go through physical therapy or something, right? There has to be something you go through. Whereas here, if you, people doctor shop for bad reasons, drugs, basically, and then also the worried well doctor shop. And that makes it so that people who want to be healthy cannot doctor shop as well, which is too bad. And, you know, having researched uh, various pain issues a lot, it's one of the main reasons why the chronic pain situation in the U.S. is so screwed up. It's because... People who have pain conditions who don't have any options other than opioids can't doctor shop because people get suspicious of them. But you can be like, oh, um, I hurt my back. And as you can see from my medical records, I've uh, I've had this uh, low back pain for a long time. So, um, you know, I need this prescription. And as long as you doctor shop thoroughly enough, you'll find a doctor to prescribe you opioids. But then... Uh, the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, will bust somebody and then er- all the doctors in the area will be like, we're no longer prescribing opioids. And that sucks. You know, now like all these people are dying because they're, they have to find some other way. Like there's uh, housewives who used to be hooked on opioids who now are looking for alternatives. And on the bad end of things, it's heroin. So that never used to happen. And now it happens. And it's because we're not a regulated healthcare system, whereas you guys are too regulated. Well, I'd, I'd love to, I would really enjoy seeing you come and, come and visit us and try and get an MRI for your shoulder. <laughs> it's, that, that's incredible, like the, the two differences, and I think you, you said it very well, of like one's trying to waste money, the other's trying to save money, and they both come out at suboptimal outcomes. Yeah. 
like even if you absolutely need one, there's a waiting list of like six six plus months, isn't there? Typically, if it's something that's non non critical or like you're not in severe amounts of pain. So yeah, it, it a wait of over a week or two here is considered long. Wow. Yeah. So I guess we, we've kind of gone down the, the the lack of health path, I suppose, or like what, it, what how do we treat disease or or um, treat ill people? But I'm going to assume that the majority of people, or I think we have to assume the majority of people who are listening to this who aren't who are looking to self-treat, who aren't going to try and solve a medical condition by themselves, like they're probably healthy, they probably don't have any visible symptoms, and they're probably just thinking, well, do I take a multivitamin? Is fish oil a good idea? Do, how much vitamin D do I need to take? And there's kind of conflicting advice on all these things. And probably the biggest one for me is that are things like a multivitamin or a greens powder or something that is designed to plug micronutrition in your diet. So if you're having a diet that you're following the kind of a, an IFYM or a, a macros-based approach, maybe not going down the food quality route as much as you maybe used to be, and you're trying to fill micronutrition using supplementation, is that a healthy thing to do or is it not as good as just having fruit and vegetables well starting with the multivitamin it's probably the most used supplement and it's very basic but the analysis of it is really complicated and it's because multivitamins have so much stuff in them and when you try to figure out outcomes for a supplement it's very hard to do the more supplements you add so there's been many, many, many trials on multivitamins, and every few years, a meta-analysis is something different. So there's some that say that people who take multivitamins are, on average, a little bit healthier, uh, or end up being a bit healthier. And then there's some that say people who take multivitamins are the same, and there's some that say this is a minority, that they're a little bit less healthy. So uh, there's meta-analyses of randomized trials where you give people multivitamin and you compare them to a group that doesn't get one. But for that, it's essentially impossible to follow them long enough until they develop a health condition. So, you know, those are great for intermediate things like do their does their blood pressure increase, does their weight go up, but those things don't tell you about whether they develop disease. And then there's observational studies. So people always poo-poo observational studies like, you know, oh, well, of course, people who drink diet soda are going to be less healthy because they're trying to lose weight. Okay, that's all kind of true. But for things like multivitamins, you really do have to use observational studies because you just follow them long. So people who take multivitamins on average are not much different in health than people who don't. And that means you have to look at the mechanisms. So there's two sides to the story. The one side is that uh, multivitamins are, are usually capped at 100% of the recommended daily allowance or they provide a ludicrous amount of vitamins and they try to be like, uh, you know, those packs with five to 10 to 20 different pills. And those ludicrous ones are ludicrous because we obviously don't need that much of a vitamin. Fat soluble vitamins, it could theoretically not be good for you. Water soluble vitamins, most of them are peed out, but some of them could also not be good for you. And then for the ones capped at 100%, that's quite arbitrary. So like the RDA for a lot of things is based on people who are sedentary and that doesn't apply to a lot of people. So it's hard to figure out which vitamins and minerals you need more of and less of. And that's why it's good to track your diet for one weekday and one weekend day and do that over a few weeks and then see what micronutrients you're low in. So there's only a couple um, free tools that let you do that. Google them on the internet. We try not to mention brand names. 
But um, if you do that and you're low in stuff, you're probably low in a few things. Most people get enough vitamin B of different B types, uh, get enough vitamin C if you eat plants. But minerals are an area where a lot of people are low. And it's because when you grow plants, it, the plant depends on the soil. And when we have monoculture and factory farming, then that means that the soil that plants are grown in is often low in a few different minerals. So, uh, you know, magnesium, uh, calcium if you don't eat meat or dairy, selenium if you're not eating a variety of things. Uh, and then if you're low in uh, seafood, then sometimes iodine. Uh, and getting more than 100% of the RDA of iodine is sometimes helpful for subclinical thyroid issues. So track your micronutrients, uh, see what they're like, and then supplement with the individual nutrient, not with the multi. So I basically never recommend a multivitamin unless the person is eating a junk diet and they're at the point where they're like, you know, I want to start eating healthy, but it's just really stressful in life right now. Give me a couple of weeks. Buy a very small bottle of multivitamins and take them for a few weeks and then stop. And then just make sure that you get a multivitamin that is not the cheapest one. Other than that, it's pretty much fine. And that also applies to greens powders. Um, greens powders are not necessary. It's a band-aid for eating healthy, and you should be able to eat healthy. The only conditions where a green powder might be helpful is if you have an extremely strange digestive disorder where eating too much plants might disturb your GI tract. Then a greens powder can help substitute a little bit. But other than that, greens powder is mostly useless. It's cool that you're not following this, this Band-Aid solution. Or you're saying, you know, use the Band-Aid temporarily went to get yourself out of the hole and then build the habits that are going to be um, established long term. What's the downside do you think to let's say someone is deficient in iodine specifically everything else is fine what would be the downside to just taking a multivitamin or if someone has what was the second example you used Maybe. i don't have a good short-term memory i don't yeah. like that movie so oh yeah so the, the green powder so oh yeah yeah so what would be the downside of say taking a greens powder rather than having those um having those vegetables in in the normal form or having a multivitamin to replenish a single nutrient for example the risk is extremely, extremely low. And the main practical risks are this. So whenever you analyze something, kind of the best way to do it is using a marginal approach. Like in uh, macroeconomics, the, the marginal benefit of something compared to the marginal detriment. So every time you buy a multivitamin bottle, you're down 20 bucks or... 10 pounds or whatever, which is not negligible. You know, it sounds like, oh, it's not health related. Who cares? As people who have bought a lot of supplements, you know, it can cost a lot of money. And Amazon is so quick and easy here in the US at least. And in San Francisco, you can get stuff the same day all the time, sometimes within two hours. So I know some people here who buy so many supplements that after two or three years, they're down a thousand bucks, you know, simple. It seems like no big deal, but Again, in economics, that $1,000 is the opportunity cost of the supplements you buy. And the opportunity you had with that $1,000 is to spend it on something cool. So I'm going to go do something after this podcast that's somewhat cool, an infrared sauna. And it might or might not have benefits, probably not for myself, but it's definitely not harmful. And I could get, let's see, 30 sessions of infrared sauna for the amount of money I would have spent on multivitamins, fish oil, and probiotics, if I would have taken those in the last few years. 
So those are very basic things, and infrared sauna is probably more helpful than those for various reasons, some of which I know and some are just theoretical. So for something like a greens powder, the detriment is a little bit different. So for a multivitamin, uh, the cost is the main one, and then there's also a chance that getting 100% of every nutrient maybe isn't good because you're adding that to the nutrients you're already getting in your diet. So like B vitamins are water-soluble. So everybody's like, oh, it doesn't matter. You know, take that fizzy, cold-preventing drink. It, it, it gives you 1,667% of vitamin B12, and that's great. Except for the fact that that's pretending like you know everything about the vitamin, and not even the best researchers know. So for, like, folic acid, it's been enriched in flour and stuff for quite a while in the U.S., and I think probably in the U.K. as well. And that's to prevent... Um, uh, neural tube defects and other things for women who are pregnant, which was great up until maybe 10 years ago when they started finding out that an excess of folic acid could predispose somebody to cancer. So then the question is, what is the threshold level for too much folic acid? And we don't know. So that means you probably don't want to take too much folic acid. Getting 100% extra folic acid is almost assuredly not too much, except for the fact that we don't know. So in public health, the precautionary principle says that Basically, if you don't know and it's important, then don't go gung-ho on things. So that's why I don't think a multivitamin is a good idea. For a greens powder, it's different because they don't have as broad of a spectrum of things that are over 100%. It's basically the things that are rich in greens. So other than nutrients, it's like chlorophyll. Chlorophyll is actually pretty good because if you take chlorophyll with stuff like charred meats, it competes with the myoglobin from the meat. So it's not uh, affecting your gut as much. But that being said, the thing about greens powders is, you know, Soylent, that uh, powdered drink that some people take as a meal replacement, um, and a lot of techies, you know, who either don't like food or think it's cool, use it instead of food. So Soylent got recalled for something a while back. Uh, there is a vegan protein powder that got recalled a while back. The chances are very low that your canister of powdered greens or protein powder is going to be recalled. But if it's recalled, the worst case scenario is you get like some kind of food poisoning, which isn't that bad until you realize that food poisoning is not benign. Food poisoning literally means that your intestine is being poisoned by too much of a bacteria. And there is kind of like a perfect storm of badness going on there. You know, you might just be sitting on the toilet wondering when it's going to stop. But the bacteria in your gut are possibly being displaced and decimated. So... You don't want to get food poisoning. You don't want to get like too much of heavy metal because a particular batch was not checked. Um, so I'm not against food that's in canisters and I actively take them, but I take them to treat a condition or to see, you know, back when if I was trying to compete in a contest, not just for preventive health, not for wellness. For wellness, you should buy nice expensive food or food cooked by somebody else that's good at cooking food, not multivitamins or greens It's very convincing. Like, if you don't know, don't go gung-ho is a very, a very good tagline, I think, to to follow and makes a lot of sense rather than... And, and you do see people that get... They just collect supplements and just take it all because why not? Something's got to work. But then the flip side of it is, as you, as you said, that there may be... There's a small chance of recall or, or that it's doing something that we don't know in the data. And when you compound that over several supplements, then the risk grows. And speaking of which, beta-alanine is one that we wanted to ask you about. 
mm-hmm. just because um, we've I've seen something on uh, it was I forgot the guy's name now. He writes for Subversity. Oh, Adele. Yeah, uh, or Alex, or yeah, that's the one. Good. So, yeah, he well, he wrote something a while ago about beta alanine um, depleting cerebral taurine and could provoke oxidative stress and damage in the brain, um, just through a potential mechanism that's not been not been established per se. Um, would you say the same kind of thing along those lines with things like beta alanine if we don't know the full data on them? Yeah, so beta alanine is actually a perfect example. So. Subversity is a, a great website, and Adele is a reviewer for our research digest. And it's interesting because a study will show, you know, he has a unique way of writing, like something boosts protein synthesis by 233% in, in two weeks. But then he's also pretty good at looking at possible detriments. And something like beta alanine does not have strong enough benefits to cancel out possible detriments. So, Unless you're a competitive athlete, beta alanine doesn't really fall in that sweet spot. Creatine does. Beta alanine in moderate doses possibly could if your individual effect is stronger than normal. But in most studies, beta alanine does not have a strong enough effect where it could. It's basically outweighed by anything. And other examples are like uh, ALA, alpha lipoic acid, sometimes used for longevity or for. Um, for blood sugar reduction or antioxidant capacity or stuff like that. But ALA could also be harmful in the long run for the liver. It's it's hard to know. There's only been one good study thus far. So there's two different types of supplements. There's the isolated things like ALA, and then there's things like creatine that are already in fairly moderate to high levels in the body. So it's not like the micronized creatine that you get in the, the canister is natural. But creatine in and of itself is natural. So things that are fairly natural or even like something like desiccated thyroid, you know, don't randomly buy that and take it because hormones, it's not something you want to mess with. That being said, like desiccated thyroid is something that people have taken for a long time. And in the East, more so than the West, there's a common saying, eat what ails you. So the initial one was that guys would eat bull testicles in order to get testosterone. So it won't do that as much nowadays, I think. But it applies to a lot of things. You can eat skin to possibly help your skin because of collagen. Uh, you can eat tendon to possibly help tendon because of collagen and other stuff. But the the basic thinking behind that is that it sounds corny, but there's plenty of stuff to experiment with that's natural, whether it's plants, whole plants or teas or extracts, or things from animals like that before you need to get into stuff like beta alanine. So it's quite that, that feels quite damning of, of beta alanine. Then, so I, I wonder how many people will will be throwing out their their tubs of beta alanine. Yeah, I actually liked beta alanine when I took it, so I feel like a hypocrite a bit. But I don't know if that's just because of the tingly feeling. I, I can't really tell. Stuff there's like a, I think there's a there's a benefit, isn't there, to things that you feel working? Like a lot of supplements uh, kind of like you take it, you like swing some water, and you just like. Yeah, I hope that was I hope that was worth the four thousand pounds that I just spent. Whereas yeah, and and it's uh, and that applies equally well to things that don't cost as much. So if you feel like your expensive supplements doing something, and it's sustainably doing something, and you test it by not taking it, and you feel worse, okay, maybe keep taking it. But this was probably a sign of things to come. But something like fifteen years ago, I started experimenting 
doing controlled trials on myself where I would I bought a capping machine and I would cap stuff uh nootropics and then I would tell somebody you know to pick which set of pills was the intervention one and take that for a couple of weeks and note the reaction so I don't do that anymore because it's it's really overdoing it but um but the, the downside of that is that you lose all placebo effect so the placebo effect is actually much more powerful than most supplement effects and it's vital to take advantage of the placebo effect in other areas of life so like one of the main reasons massage is helpful is because of human touch and human touch is a mix of various sensory things that help and also placebo so people mix up placebo and things that are placebo-ish so like going to a kind nice open doctor is kind of a placebo but because um you know like sympathetic tone is so important and state of mind is so important if you have a healthcare practitioner that is relaxing uh that episode of being with the doctor can stick in your head for quite a while so maybe that's you know under the area of placebo or maybe not but very tiny things like that that stick in your head are important so that applies to like uh the doctor or eating a really good meal or people in the UK like for UK podcasts i don't know if this isn't like broad based evidence but if you can afford a warm weather vacation maybe everybody in the UK does this it's more important than any supplement like a two week warm weather vacation is worth every single penny and it's not just the vitamin d you know sunlight increases nitric oxide synthesis and orphan release when you're outside you get more social interaction there's infrared rays as well as uv b rays there's just so much stuff from sunlight so i think everybody in the uk if they can afford it should take a warm weather vacation in the winter cuz uh not only the stuff i mentioned but you can store up several months worth of vitamin d from that one vacation unless the health effects are offset by two weeks in magaluf nailing cocaine and 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 alcohol and and uh sexually transmitted infections and things and then you've managed to I'd say that, fully offset you know, low level like if you titrate up the cocaine and the infections then it's okay but you don't want to go full in right away of course yeah you don't want to go um gung-ho with with any yeah, infection that you still want some net benefit from the sunlight then. yeah fine you know and i i'd have to say even on the serious note people don't know a lot about low level stuff but um like low level naltrexone for example naltrexone and naloxone are both drugs used to kick people out of opioid overdoses and also some other stuff but a low level of naltrexone hypothetically could help with overeating due to basically quote unquote addiction to food low level naltrexone could also help with certain autoimmune conditions uh because it affects endorphin release in the brain uh which also could help uh microglial cells in the brain uh the the coding of the nerve and then low levels of probiotics could also help more than probiotics because now there's like a an arms race to market the the probiotic that has the most live units like it used to be that a billion was good now it's like a billion is nothing like if you're not at 10 billion or above then you suck so that's kind of getting away from what a probiotic does Do you really want to introduce a bunch of new stuff into your gut that has its own environment? It's like if you have a crowded house and then you're like, "Oh, hey, I got a house guest. 
and the house guest is really loud and they're going to stay here for a month, you know, who knows? Maybe the house guest is going to help you by opening your mind to I don't know what, but the house guest could be really annoying and prevent you from sleeping and, you know, whatever. So nobody knows what probiotic do. You know, there's a lot of randomized trials showing potential benefits of some probiotics, but I can tell you from firsthand knowledge that um, side effects profiles are not very well captured in any randomized trial, whether it's supplements or drugs. And I say that because every randomized trial has to submit their protocol to something called clinicaltrials.gov, uh, which is controlled by the federal government. And they subcontracted that out to the research center I used to work at. So, you know, once a week I would go through these trials for drugs or supplements or medical devices or whatever and see if there are errors and then go ask the people to correct the errors. So I found out two things. One is that something as simple as death, mortality, is not a controlled definition. So some researchers find death in a certain way and some in another way. So, you know, I would just think that if you die, it's death. But some trials, they'll be like, oh, you know, if you die, but it's an accident, no big because not related to our drug. But what if it was related to the drug? You know, what if you were feeling fatigued and you stepped in front of a bus by accident and you died? So you should capture all those deaths, report that data, but also report what you think the death was due to. So you have two sets of data, but not every trial does that. And then when you get to the level of supplements, they don't give a shit, you know, because nobody's making them do anything and they don't have a regulating body looking at them. So they won't report side effects very well. So you can tell more so what a supplement does well than what it does wrong. So that's why a low level of something is a good idea for almost any supplement. Scary stuff. And that was actually going to be our, our next question about probiotics and whether you think and I, I imagine your answer might be the same as, as, as greens powder versus vegetables, where if we want to maintain our gut microbiome, if there are benefits to that, then are we better off just eating fermented foods rather than taking a 10 billion um, culture in a pill? Well, so fermented foods have a lot more bacteria than the pills do. And it's a lot easier for them to be alive. So those are all good things. On the bad side of things... That means that if you start eating fermented food and you haven't been doing it, like since you're a kid or at least for the past few years, you could end up with some issues. Not just because of all the bacteria, but also because some drinks like kombucha and some foods like kimchi can also increase the release of histamine from your gut cells uh, because they're aged. And that's the same reason why aged foods can cause some reactions in people unrelated to bacteria. So that's why you have to be uh, careful with fermented foods. Now, if you're one of the lucky few that's eaten fermented foods since you were a kid, then, you know, have at it. Keep eating fermented foods. You're probably a bit healthier than most other people are. But don't start eating fermented foods because you think it's a healthier alternative to pills. In fact, I'd say it's the reverse. If you have some condition or if you have some potential gut something that you don't know about and you can't see your doctor because you live in the UK and there's a waiting list, then take a tiny bit of a very safe probiotic. Um, like, you know, a rule for us is not to mention brand names, but I don't know if I can, if I can avoid it this time. There are some really well-studied ones like Culturel that are mostly really benign. Uh, so if you take that and you, if you have a side effect, you can just stop taking it. But if you take something like a soil-based probiotic, 
that has organisms that are not often naturally found or sometimes naturally found in the gut, but have some other benefits because we don't eat organic food that's grown in the dirt that still has some dirt clinging on. So the only really other way to get that is soil-based probiotics or growing your own food. So those can have a lot of benefits, but they can also have some detriments in some people because some of those bacteria can form spores and the spores can persist in your gut. And if it causes an issue, then the issue could persist as well. So probiotics are a lot more complicated than any other supplement. You know, multivitamin, I said was complicated, but it's 10 times less than a probiotic. Uh, fish oil, somewhat complicated, but, you know, a hundred times less complicated than a probiotic. I feel like we could go through, like, I think probably a few stuff and I like, really sat and listed everything that we've ever had a question of. We could probably go through every supplement that our listeners are taking. But I guess rather than that, Kamal, we don't want to take up too much of your time. What's Where's the best place for us to find out more about you? I'm, I'm going to guess it's examine.com, but are there any other outlets or products people can buy, things people can download? Yeah, so we sell some products. We sell a research digest, a supplement stack guide to find out how supplements work together, and then basically a bunch of information in PDF form. Those are all on our website. I answer questions if you email me on the website, try to get to every email. I'm on Facebook, but I temporarily deactivated my account as you know I try to be more mindful once a season or so, and this is that season. But eventually I'll be back on at facebook.com slash Miranda July. That's not my real name. It's a long story why I don't have a, a male name or my own name. I'm on, on Twitter right now at twitter.com slash Zen Kamal. And I, I try to post more studies on there. And then the if you have a study you have a question about, great. And if you have a health condition or you're trying to get really jacked, we can't give medical advice, but I like hearing about interesting cases. So, you know... If you're just, if this is the most common kind of email I get, I just graduated college and, you know, I'm not, I'm trying to find a way to get more ripped and I don't know how, you know, not to be blunt, but I don't care about that. But like I got an email from somebody with Parkinson's the other day, that's 65 and, you know, it's kind of like gut wrenching. They're like, probably have about two years to live. I want to see my grandchildren grow up, blah, blah, blah. I'm not a doctor. I can't give medical advice. But I see random studies a lot, so I will email you with random studies I found just because it's good to be nice and you, you kind of get that back sometimes. So email me if you have something interesting or if a family member does, and I'd love to hear from you. It's a very kind offer, and it's it's really cool as well that throughout this podcast you've kind of given us a, a and, the, and the listeners a framework to approach something which is just, I think, an absolute forest or a jungle is the word they use in it where, where tundra yeah of studies and conflicting information and even even the meta-analyses of the meta-analyses of of flaws and lost data so to to have this approach now to work through and see how you're responding yourself is um a great way to cut through all of that so that's really awesome stuff and it's cool that you you're also willing to to help people by email in terms of special cases one thing just before you go, we wanted to ask you about as well, which was, so you, you said that you'd taken some time off social media and that you're quite into, into mindfulness and meditation. Um, can you tell mm -hmm. us a bit about that? Yeah, so uh, I've been into mindfulness stuff since a little bit after college. Basically, I took an online test for uh, one of those stupid 
almost like what Harry Potter character are you? But this one spit out a bunch of different things, including what religion you should be. And I was like, hold up. I don't, what if I don't want to be any of them? But it ended up turning up you should be some kind of Buddhist. And I was like, I don't want to be some kind of Buddhist, but you know, I want to find out about mindfulness. And then eventually I ended up briefly working at a mindfulness research center at this hospital. And it was really fascinating. So I found out ways that mindfulness can be used clinically. And one of the best was their mindful eating program. So um, since then, personally, I try to, I'm not good at all with my personal meditation practice, but mindfulness doesn't have to be meditation, you know, and doesn't have to be mystical or whatever at all. Basically, um, my best advice for that is like a standing desk helps not just because you're standing and you shouldn't stand a lot anyway for most people. It's because anything you can do to introduce kind of a, a break or a jolt is good. Back in the day, the the Zen master would hit you with a stick, and that's not good. But if you take micro breaks at work, then a great micro break is, you know, some of them it's going to get a cup of water or something or talking to a friend. But at least one or two a day should be step away, do a couple belly breaths, and then, you know, focus on your thoughts. So that's not meditation. It's just like I can tell you what I was thinking. Yeah, before this podcast, I was totally mindless because I was like, oh, should we have done this podcast earlier or something? Or, oh, like, what's timing going to be like today? And then it sucks outside right now. So I was thinking about that. But if I was paying attention to my thoughts, it would have been like, the time doesn't matter. You know, these guys seem nice. It's whatever. So that thought floats away. You know, I observe the thought that it's bad outside, but it's it's going to be okay soon. So that floats away. Soon the thoughts, are, the thoughts all float away and you're clear enough to the point where you can work without thinking too negatively about things. So that sounds kind of, you know, haphazard, but the benefit to mindfulness, if it could be put in a pill form, is much stronger than any medication. And it's not this like trend or something. It's just that through eons, the best thinkers in the world, the people who perform best, are always mindful because if you're distracted, you can't perform well. Cool, great uh, finishing words there as well. All right, it makes me feel because I'm I'm at a standing desk as we're recording this. So, oh, very, I didn't even notice because of the camera angle. <laughs> yeah, I find I find it pretty like I think it makes you conscious of the fact like I've been standing here a while. I need to go and do something different, more so than sitting. I don't know why. I don't know whether it's the fatigue element or just the position that you're in. But yeah, it in does terms make- of uh, like uh, low-hanging fruit, high-benefit, uh, low-effort things, standing desk is one of the best. And it's not because I think standing is good. It's because micro-breaks are good. And it's just so underrated that it's... Like, I don't know if... Uh, I haven't been using... Um, like, putting one, even putting one leg up on something, sometimes putting one leg up and sometimes putting it down, is that's like standing desk times two. Because it, it boosts the benefit, you know. It's weird because in these podcasts, often I'm just talking about non-supplement things. But it's because <laughs> I research supplements all day. And I'm like, there's only a few that work very well. Everything else is a lifestyle intervention. Mm-hmm. So, well, that, that in itself is probably the best the best closing thought we can probably leave on. So uh, put more effort into lifestyle change than into supplementation. Or at least yep. lifestyle first, then supplement on top of that. That's it in a nutshell. Well, Kamal, it's been fantastic speaking to you. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's really my pleasure.